Now this morning I'm reading about Joseph from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, but um, I'm thinking about him as one among several others in the Christmas history, uh, typical of a small group of people who appear to us in this wonderful history. Uh, Joseph is a representative of them. So you might want to keep a finger in Luke chapter 1 and 2 at the same time as we are reading and thinking about uh, Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. This betrothal was the first legal stage of marriage in that culture in that time. Hence, Joseph's plan later to divorce Mary, and hence his being referred to as her husband and she as his wife, as we will see. But at this point, the marriage feast had not yet taken place, and the two had not yet begun to live together. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Two very important lines of evidence converge there to make this statement of the angel a demonstration of the deity of Jesus Christ now become a man. First, there is the his in the phrase his people. To say that the people of God are Jesus' people in the language of the Bible is to say that Jesus is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is declared to be God's people. It was the chief promise of his covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people. And second, throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh and Yahweh alone is said to be the savior of his people. That Jesus is now to be the savior of his people, as he is both by his name, Jesus, the Lord saves, and by the statement the angel makes about what he will do, is tantamount to his being identified as Yahweh himself. In Psalm 130, verse 8, we read that the Lord, Yahweh, will redeem Israel from all their sins. And now we hear that Jesus will save his people from their sins. No matter, no wonder, rather, the supernatural conception of this infant. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we want to be carried back by thy gracious spirit and by the power of our imagination to those days when these marvelous things began to unfold. Jesus Christ made his appearance in the world. And we want to look at these people among whom these startling and wonderful events took place. And we want to be like them. 
Help us, O oh God, not only to see them for what they were, but to find them immensely attractive and their witness and their character persuasive and telling to us. That, O oh God, we know would be a pleasure to you. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two verses of the chapter, together with verse 19, paint the picture of a man who was faithful, obedient, tender-hearted, and deeply reverent. The impression given is that it was, it was Joseph's own idea not to have sexual relations with his wife Mary, and that he denied himself and she herself precisely because of their reverence, his reverence, for the baby that she was carrying. This impression is confirmed in verse 19, where Matthew himself tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. And he was righteous in the old, rich, strong sense of the word from the Old Testament. Just, absolutely, but merciful at the same time. His plan was to divorce Mary because the evidence indicated, obviously, that she was an adulteress. But even in the face of what he had to believe was her betrayal, even in the midst of what must have been his own bitter disappointment, and for a man perhaps even more his own shame and embarrassment, he was still considerate of her feelings and her reputation. In other words, he was a man very much like his wife, Mary. She was a devout and a righteous young woman, impressive for her devotion and her righteousness. And that ought not to surprise us. From time immemorial, godly young men and women have found themselves drawn to one another in large part because of the godliness they admired in one another. Joseph believed the message the Lord gave him in a dream. That was faith. And he did what he was told. That was obedience. Faith and obedience together. And in Joseph's case, practiced in defiance of appearances. For surely he was not the only one who would know that Mary was pregnant. Many would naturally suppose him to be guilty of the sin. And no doubt, he kept his mouth shut, as righteous men will. In this respect, in terms of his godliness, his goodness, his character, Joseph is typical of the delightful people who were scattered through the Christmas narratives in Matthew and Luke. They are some of the most attractive minor characters in the New Testament. Think of Mary herself, and Roman Catholic doctrine notwithstanding, she remains a relatively minor character in the gospel history. But think of what can be known about this young woman from the little bit we are told of her. She was a master of the Holy Scripture, young as she was, a teenager probably. She could construct a magnificent poem, we know it as the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, by stringing together phrases taken from all different places in the Word of God. She was a woman of sturdy faith, of beautiful humility, of pristine purity. She was animated also by a love for the house and the people of God. Several times in her great poem, she thinks of what these extraordinary developments will mean, not for herself only, but for the people of God. They were simple people, Joseph and Mary, so far as we can tell. They certainly were not people of means, we know that because when they came to the temple 
to offer sacrifices at the consecration of their firstborn son. As we read later in Luke chapter 2, they offered a pair of birds, not a lamb. This was the offering prescribed in the law of Moses for those who could not afford a lamb. Next to them we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, but he wasn't a significant priest. He didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in the hill country of Judea. For all we know, when Zechariah's division happened to be serving in the temple, and he was chosen by Lot to go into the temple and burn incense, this was the first and only time in his life he had done so. We don't know that for sure, but there were thousands of priests, and they rotated only very slowly through the temple duties. There were, they were, both of them, by this time, and older, and as we know, they were childless. But when the Lord came suddenly to his temple and the angel appeared to Zechariah, it is clear that the angel came to him in particular because he was a godly man, even if he stumbled somewhat over the amazing news that was given to him. A point is made of this when in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, we are told that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. They were the kind for whom the worship of the temple and all of its sacrifices were true, pure, evangelical worship. And we learn the same thing of Simeon and Anna in the brief accounts were given of them in Luke chapter 2. Simeon was an old man who had long been waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Spirit of God prompted him to be in the temple that day when Joseph and Mary came, no doubt joyfully and gratefully, to present their firstborn son to the Lord. We can see the old man, his long beard, his eyes glistening with tears as he held the baby in his arms and praised God that he had been permitted to live to see the Messiah. His nunc dimittis is a perfect expression of true evangelical love and joy and faith. It is simply an Old Testament form of the Apostle Paul's for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Anna, in the same way, a woman who had married young, been widowed after only seven years of marriage, and was at least now in her 80s. And perhaps we should read Luke's numbers as indicating that she is now almost a 100 years of age. She was a woman who so loved the worship of God that Luke says she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. One scholar says of these last two, what can be said of all six of these people. Simeon and Anna are representatives of the holiness, which in a time of great spiritual deadness still survived among the men and women of Israel. They are instances of that spontaneous priesthood which sometimes springs up and often among the lower orders when the regular clergy have become corrupt and secularized. Not a one of these people surfaces in any of the historical records of the period. Not one of them was of any consequence in the political and social life of the time. None was a household name, none an individual who would be recognized on the street, not a celebrity among them. What they had in common was a living faith that worked through love. They were Christians in the truest sense of that term, even before the term came into use. They loved the Lord and sought to please him they walked with him through the daily round of life. 
Surely it's an important observation, something we are meant to see and to ponder. That the Lord's birth and the events surrounding it should have taken place among these people. That people like these should have figured so prominently at the appearance of the Son of God in the world. That the gift should have been given directly to them. What we know about all of these six people who figure so wonderfully in the account of the Savior's birth, and then with a single exception, Mary, drop completely from the biblical and historical record, is that they were part of a spiritual remnant of Jews in that day. Most of the people who belonged to the church of that time had lost true and living faith in the Lord a long time since. The authentic evangelical religion of Moses had been again, as it had so often before in Israel's history, been corrupted into a religion of works and merit and self-achievement and self-satisfaction of rituals empty of true love and true faith. People were still religious, very religious. They still spoke much of the same language. They talked about God's love and even about God's grace. But there was no longer any place in their minds or hearts for a Redeemer who would die for the sins of the world. They would have, as people always do, hotly denied this. But the proof of it would come later when Jesus came among them preaching, teaching, and working his miracles. The people could make no sense of what he was saying to them. And when they finally understood him, they hated him for saying it. Though he worked miracles that no one could deny, they still would not receive or accept him as the Messiah. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, and Mary, Simeon, and Anna were part of that small believing remnant within a church now so spiritually and theologically corrupt that at the last it demanded the crucifixion, the execution of the Messiah it ostensibly was waiting eagerly to receive. As at the beginning of his life, so at the end, there were just a few people in the country who accepted him, who loved him and trusted him as the Savior of the world. But there should be such a small remnant of faithful men and women at such a critical juncture in the history of salvation in a way should not surprise us. It was always the case. Think, for example, of the days of Moses and the exodus from Egypt, the Old Testament's great picture of salvation and redemption. Miracles occurred then too. God displayed his supernatural power for all the world to see then too. But that whole company that the Lord had brought out of bondage in Egypt on eagle's wings perished in the wilderness because they did not have true and living faith in the Lord their God. Though God was with them and acted miraculously to deliver them, parting the waters of the sea, providing manna for them in the wilderness, bringing water from the rock. Though Jesus Christ was with them in the wilderness to provide for them, as the Apostle Paul says, though the gospel was preached to them, as we read in Hebrews, they were not saved because they did not have faith. They were not like Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were rather like the generality of church members in the time when Jesus was born. Religious to be sure, but not gospel believers, not true welcomers and followers of Jesus Christ. 
But there were a few folk in that long ago day who loved the Lord and obeyed his word and did not perish in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb among the spies and their families. Moses and Aaron and Phinehas, no doubt a few others as well. They were the remnant as the Old Testament prophets would come to call the faithful few in a largely faithless church. And it was the same at another juncture in salvation history, the only other time when miracles and wonders were experienced in the world. At the headwaters of the prophetic movement in Israel stand Elijah and Elisha. They had predecessors, of course. Moses was a prophet. We read about Nathan in the time of King David. But the prophetic movement really begins with Elijah and Elisha, the succession of prophets who would provide for us so much of the Old Testament. In Elijah's time, we know, because the Lord actually told him there were but 7,000 among the several millions in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal. The clergy was profoundly corrupt. The people were happy for it to be so. The church was worldly. It was uninterested in the word of God. It was dazzled by the pagan worship and lifestyle around it and came to prefer it to that which was taught in the law of Moses. But there were some who were faithful, even in that very unfaithful time. Think of Obadiah, not the prophet who gives his name to the Old Testament book, another man of the same name, who actually held an important office in the court of wicked King Ahab. The Bible says of him, he loved the Lord greatly. He was a man like Joseph, Simeon, Zechariah. He served one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, yet he loved the Lord greatly. And at great risk to himself, he once used his position to shelter some of the Lord's faithful prophets from the wrath of the king. He was one of those 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. In the Old Testament prophets, we find this teaching about the remnant. As we read the historical record, it becomes clear that there are comparatively few times in the history of the church when we find most people who call themselves Christians and think of themselves Christians really embracing the Christian life, really practicing the Christian life, really embracing the faith. Most of the time, whether in the ancient epoch or in the history of the church since, since Pentecost, the largest number of church members have been unsaved. And there has been only a remnant of faithful people among the mass of those who claim to believe, but who do not really and do not follow the Lord. The kingdom of God is usually found among a remnant. I tell you this, this doctrine is absolutely essential to understand and believe if you will come truly to embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it is taught in Holy Scripture. I say this further, if only the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the other two-thirds of Christendom, would simply embrace this teaching taught so plainly and so emphatically and so repeatedly as it is in Holy Scripture, these three parts of Christianity would begin to converge. And we would find union with those churches. If only the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church would admit that through its history the largest part of those who have been belonged to its churches have not been saved.
have not really known the Lord Jesus Christ or followed him or received his righteousness and eternal life through true and living faith in him. Let Roman Catholics just admit that fact. Let the Orthodox admit that fact as we who read the Bible must admit that fact. And we will come to find ourselves thinking more and more and more alike about the salvation of God. This was a major theme in the teaching of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah. It is repeated again in the New Testament. God will preserve for himself a remnant of faithful men and women, even when his people as a whole have betrayed his covenant. He will save this remnant, and from them he will rebuild his kingdom generation after generation. And when the Lord Jesus is sent by his Father into the world as an infant son of a virgin mother, it is into the circle of this remnant that he comes. He will later gather around himself another small company out of this remnant. Twelve disciples who stand for the whole kingdom of God. The women who followed him. And it will be these folk, this small remnant of true belief, who grief-stricken watch him die and who reverently and lovingly lay his body in the grave, and then with joy welcome his return on Easter Sunday morning. And it will be upon this remnant that the Holy Spirit will descend, and out of this remnant there will come that powerful force that over the next 30 years or so would turn the world upside down. And in the history of the church ever since, it has usually been but a remnant of faithful Christians existing in a great church that by and large has lost its way. You can go to Europe today and go to worship on a Sunday morning in the great cathedrals that litter that continent, the great churches, and you will find a few people gathered there, most of whom do not have a clue as to what it really means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in a house here or a small sanctuary there, you will find small groups of people who love him and are committed to him and trust him for their salvation. So it was when Jesus was born. So it is today. There are some two billion people in the world, a third of its population, who are considered Christians of some sort. But how many of them know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him in faith and obedience. There are many real Christians, we're happy to say, far more today than there were when Jesus was born. We're glad for that. But still they represent only a remnant of the whole. This baleful fact seems startlingly clear to us at Christmas time, especially the whole world, it seems, sings the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but only a very few people out of that large company actually honor him as their Lord and Savior. Only a few of them are like Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna. Only a few of them have in their hearts a longing for the consolation of Israel. Or in the language of our text this morning, only a few of them would know what the angel meant, would be able to appreciate what he said when he said to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Only a few understand and appreciate what the Christmas history is really all about. 
salvation from sin. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna understood that. The Jews of their day, by and large, did not. Jesus' great objection to the thinking of the church of his own day was the way in which that thinking promoted self-confidence. They had a diminished view of sin and an exalted view of themselves. People, even so-called Christian people, by and large, simply do not get this. John Youngs said to me the other day, as we sat in the lobby of the retirement home and talked together, and people walked by slowly, as they do at that time of life, and John greeted each one by name, he leaned over to me and said, the problem here is that so many of these people think they are going to get in because they are good. That's the theology of the American Christmas, is it not? He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. But it's not the theology of Christmas in the Bible. No, there we are told, as we have been told recently in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that we are dead in transgressions and sins. And as Zechariah knew to say in his great song in Luke 1, the Benedictus, Jesus came to give his people salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. A corpse may be very little emaciated, still warm, still supple. It may still have a tinge of color in the cheek, even a smile upon its lips. It may be still very precious, and beautiful in the eyes of those who loved it. But it is dead. And a loathsome rot sets in sooner or later. It is only a matter of time. And we would all of us see this in stark clarity. If we were for but one instant to see our sins as God sees them. To judge our lives according to the standard of God's perfection, His perfect holiness, as He is always judging our lives. Our sin today, yours and mine, is not one whit less hateful or abominable to the God of righteousness and love than was the sin for which He destroyed the old world by the flood or the sin for which He cast out of His presence forever the angels who fell. Augustine saw the sinfulness of all human beings as consisting in three dimensions. Superbia, or pride. Concupiscientia, or evil desires. And homo in say, man curved in on himself, or selfishness. And so we are, and so is every human being. Proud, thinking so highly of ourselves, so much more highly than we ought. Crowding everyone else out of the center that we occupy. Slave of our desires and our lusts and curved in on ourselves, preoccupied with our own interests at the expense of others. That's what human beings are. And simple observation confirms it a million times over. And that's why Jesus Christ came into the world to deliver us from these sins which have so corrupted and perverted our lives. One of the most popular little books ever to be published in Victorian Great Britain was a little book, an essay, about love 
by a Scott Presbyterian named Henry Drummond entitled The Greatest Thing in the World. It went through scores of printings and sold hundreds of thousands of copies. In some way, its popularity heralded the drift away from orthodoxy in the Protestant world of Great Britain in that day. Another Scotsman, Ralph Connor, recollected a long walk he once enjoyed with Alexander White through the countryside. And on that walk, they fell to talking about Henry Drummond and his book. The trouble with Ennery, said Alexander White, is that he does not ken anything about sin. Well, the same thing could be said about most people and a very large portion of the people who call themselves Christians in our world today. They don't know anything about sin. They have no idea at all how much there is of it in their hearts and their lives. They have no idea what a killing force it is. They do not appreciate what an offense it is to God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity and who will by no means clear the guilty and who is angry with the wicked every day. It does not occur to them ever that all of the misery and all of the suffering in our benighted world, this veil of tears, is all, every bit of it, the result, the consequence, the judgment of human sin and a picture of what it is and what it does. And so they never think to write a Magnificat or a Benedictus out of their own hearts at the news of the coming of the Son of God. But these simple people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, knew that much. They knew they were sinners, thorough, inveterate sinners. They knew that their hearts and their lives were filled with what was proud and evil and utterly selfish. And they knew that they could never be right with God or ever live forever unless somehow or another those sins were taken away. And when the birth of Jesus was announced, it made perfect sense to them that the angel would say that he was coming to take away their sins. The Lord has done a great thing for me, Mary sang in her hymn. And so everyone sings who knows that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. For people who know nothing about sin. Christmas is cute, and it's fun. For Joseph and his ilk, Christmas is epoch-making. It's breathtaking. It's earth-shaking. It's wonderful beyond the power of words to describe because it is deliverance for the captives, and we are captive. Only the remnant... Only those with genuine faith understand the Christmas history to be about the appearance of a Savior. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not about the theory of salvation. Not about a way of life that people ought to follow. It is about a person to whom they will be and must be absolutely committed to at the deepest level of their being. And that forever. This is not what most people are thinking about at Christmas time. It's not what most Christians are thinking about at Christmas time. But it is very definitely what we are taught to think about Jesus Christ 
and about Christmas in the history recorded for us in Matthew and Luke. He, this one man, who is also God the Son, the creator of heaven and earth, stands astride human history as a titan and levels all other men, all other religious teachers, all other religious leaders in the dust. He alone can save human beings from the one thing they need to be saved from, their sins, which is to save themselves. And this is precisely what these simple people understood. Most of their contemporaries did not understand this. Even the highly religious among them, even the priests and the religious teachers hadn't a clue. Their expectations of the Messiah were completely different from those of Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna. They wanted him to come and to confirm, confirm them in their rightness, not deliver them from their badness. But Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These simple people knew that. They needed a savior. They didn't deserve one, but they needed one. And God now had sent one to them. And when he came, he would become the most important person in their existence. And he would remain so forever. Do you understand these things? Are you like Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, Zechariah and Elizabeth? Do you welcome the infant king for the same reasons they welcomed him? And rejoice at his coming for the reasons they rejoiced? Do you stand with the great crowd of those comfortable with themselves or with the remnant who cannot help but say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? It's no small thing that people like these people should figure so prominently in the history of the appearing of the Son of God in the world. They were not great as the world counts greatness. They were not important people. They were very ordinary in almost every way. But they knew something that the world did not know. And that even most in the church did not know. And they knew something that still only a remnant today knows. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. They loved and worshipped him as their savior because they knew they needed to be saved. This Christmas and every Christmas I want to be like them. I want to be the kind of person Joseph was and Mary and Simeon and Anna and Zechariah and Elizabeth. The greatest thing that ever happened. God the Son coming into the world to be born of a virgin as a true and authentic man. It happened to them. Because they of all people could appreciate what it meant. What he meant. What he had come to do. The angel could say to them, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And they knew what the angel meant. And they rejoiced at the news he brought. I want to be like them. And I want you, every one of you, to be like them also. Amen.